Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Almost 50,000 men and women are being held in prolonged solitary confinement in U.S. prisons in breach of minimum standards laid down by the United Nations, which considers such isolation a form of torture. In a new report spearheaded by Yale Law School, the number of prisoners subjected to, quote, restrictive housing, as solitary is often known, stood at between 41,000 and 48,000 in the summer of 2021. They were being held alone in cells the size of parking spaces for 22 hours a day on average and for at least 15 days. Within that number, more than 6,000 prisoners have been held in isolation for over a year. They include almost 1,000 people who have been held on their own in potentially damaging confined spaces for a decade or longer. Studies have shown that even short periods of solitary can bring on severe mental health problems, including depression, aggression, and suicidal thoughts. Its destructive harm was highlighted by the death earlier this month of Albert Woodfox, who, before his release from Louisiana's notorious Angola prison in 2016, was the longest standing solitary confinement inmate in the country. He was in solitary for 43 years, almost without break, in a six foot by nine foot cell. In his 2019 book, Solitary, Woodfox described the impact of decades of isolation on him. He had regular terrifying bouts of claustrophobia, which forced him to sleep sitting up to avoid the sensation of the walls closing in on him. When the researchers began the series of annual snapshots in 2014, the number of prisoners trapped in isolation was almost twice today's level, at between 80,000 to 100,000. Since then, the graph has steadily declined, with a growing number of states introducing new laws to restrict or even ban the practice. Judith Resnick, Yale's Arthur Lyman Professor of Law, stated, In the 1980s, people promoted solitary confinement as a way to deal with violence in prisons. It is now seen as a problem itself that needs to be solved. California, a state with a long history of abusive solitary confinement, is currently debating new legislation. The California Mandela Act would require every custodial institution in the state to impose strict rules and reporting and would ban solitary for pregnant women, people under 26 or over 59, and those with mental or physical disabilities. Last year, New York State passed similar legislation, joining a growing list. The Yale study finds that three states, Delaware, North Dakota, and Vermont, reported having no inmates in such confinement in 2021, and two other states said they had fewer than 10 people. John Thompson, who spent more than a third of his 37 years in prison in solitary for largely minor infractions, described recently in the Philadelphia Inquirer how it, quote, chipped away at my positive attitude, my patience, and my personality. He spent sometimes years on end in a tiny cell, prohibited from talking to anybody else, and, quote, with the fluorescent light bulbs shining on me at nearly all hours of the day so that I could be surveilled. Black women are also disproportionately targeted. Some 30% of those in restrictive housing and women's prisons are African-American, compared with 20% of the overall prison population. 
A whistleblower is outing a racist and misogynistic Instagram page that mocks women getting sexually assaulted at the federal prison in Dublin, California, female officers sleeping their way to the top, and black men in custody getting thrown in solitary for fun, among other Instagram posts. The whistleblower wrote the Internal Affairs Division of the Bureau of Prisons this month, telling them that they believe the author of the page, quote, Good Verbal, works at the Federal Correction Center in Victorville in Central California, based on private jokes and inside knowledge of the post. The whistleblower asked that the IA investigators find out who exactly is behind the page, discipline that person, and ultimately shut the page down. Quote, I refuse to work in a dangerous environment and be subjected to this type of treatment by alleged fellow staff members, the letter to Internal Affairs read. I'm one of many people that are targets of these nasty and highly offensive posts. It should also be noted that other institutions in various regions across the county are affected by this disgusting page. This page has the potential to turn into a national law enforcement issue. The whistleblower added, Please address this issue before things get out of hand. I refuse to allow a bully to win. This page has crossed the line and there is no justification for it. KTVU News reports speaking to four sources, all confirming their belief that the author of the page works at FCC Victorville in San Bernardino County. All of them also painted a picture of a hostile and toxic work environment at the prison where pictures of a black officer has been drawn with a noose and a gay officer had red lipstick drawn on his photograph, which hung in the hallway. The Victorville prison is just one of the nation's federal prisons embroiled in controversy over corruption, criminal misconduct, staffing crises, inmate escapes, and sexual abuse. This week, Zolo Azania returns to the show. He recently visited Indiana University's campus and gave a talk that we heard some of last week. Now he reflects on that visit and talks a bit more about his history and how learning to use the law and lawyers improved his life. The efforts of Azania, his lawyers, and supporters helped to successfully free him from death row, and he was released in 2017. Afterwards, we hear from Don Abdul Roberts, who gave us advice in 2016 for one of our early shows. Don stresses the importance of using legal tools to help people free themselves from the system. As he says, it's a bourgeois tool with working class implications. Both Zolo and Don are former prisoners from the Midwest who organized outside and inside prison walls. Zolo with Chicago Black Panther Party and Don with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and DRUM. We appreciate their insight into how important rigorous knowledge seeking is today. You have to put yourself in a position of being childlike, of actually going in not knowing anything. Uh, of what you are trying to learn, because you're going to have to unlearn what you have learned and brainwashed and been taught over, over the years to find out that there's no such thing as Santa Claus. I was 22 years old before I learned that rabbits didn't lay eggs. I used to live and live on a farm because I associated uh, rabbits with Easter bunnies and that these are eggs that were laid by the rabbits. And I found out that wasn't true. Then when I started to do a deeper study, I found out of how that uh, became about, you know, uh, during, during the times of the Roman, uh, existence of the Roman Empire and how they, uh, they had the excesses and how they used to send out uh, little children, sometimes little girls, and then they would turn these, uh, the, uh, 
the, the, the emperor and his associates, and they would be out there running around trying to catch these little girls and these little boys and have their way with them, you know. And then they stopped doing that and started using these eggs, and you go egg hunting, you know. So that's 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 a that's a short oversimplification of what it was, you know. So I started learning these things. So like a child, when they learn something, they want to run back and tell their parents. And so what I used to, I used to write letters, Mama. I found out that my name meant this. It's German, and it means Rusty Red. My name used to be Rufus Averhart before I changed my name. So uh, when I found out different things, I would, Mama, you know, your family were the first one you 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 test stuff on, you know, and that's and that's what I used to do, you know, yeah. Indiana University has a history of being highly conservative. You know, they lean towards maintaining the status quo, and uh, it has a top-notch law school, but this law school is where your top judges, who be, eventually become judges, attended this school. You see, along with Harvard, Stanford, and uh, uh, Rutgers University. Universities like that is where, who, uh, where you have these... Uh, your, your top uh, 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 judges, and you know, come from who be, who eventually become judges. Mm -hmm. You know, they attended uh, Indiana University Law School. They did graduate work at Indiana University. Uh, they did this. They did that. They did they whatever. You know, PhD or whatever. You know, okay. it's Indiana University. So it's a big deal that you're yes. that you're here. Yes, and 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 then when Nick was telling about the law students. I'm like, what? Wow. Because these are the things that we was trying to do when, we, when I was on death row. I was trying to reach the law students because it was the students who would be eventually become my attorney. Because there were some attorneys that I, been, I met who were still in high school at the time when I was arrested on their case in 1981. But they eventually uh, went to school, uh, became an attorney. And I, I met them, so I call you. I, I constantly. I, my point of reference was how old I was at when this happened. Where was I at when this was going on? When I meet people, I find out how old they were. Then I think about what I was doing at that time and where I was at. Most of the time, I was in prison. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's one of, one of the things you were talking about earlier today. It's for that seven year stint when you were eighteen to twenty five. And, you know, starting to read, starting to write, you know, and as you were just indicating with, with the Easter Bunny, thinking on your own terms and thinking things anew and kind of washing away previous conceptions. Can you go into more of that process of, like, what was that experience like? What sorts of things were you reading? What sorts of effects were they having on you? And then what were you yourself writing? How are you getting your, your own ideas and communications out there? There's a saying, keep it real, in prison, there's no privacy. Anything that's done by another prisoner, some other prisoner know about it or is privy to it. So everything's in the open. And you, and you learn to live that way and you do not have time for fantasies. Even if I told a lie about something, I want to know what the real truth is. You know, I may be lying about something, 
for whatever reason it may be, but I know what the truth is. You see, because a person can spread false and misleading information, not because they intentionally lying, but because they just simply don't know. And when they don't know, they guess or use what, what's called uh, logic. So, but everything is not lying or it's not straight, a straight line. You know, to, when, a, when I may know you from this night now, and you may start it out here, but to get to here, when we meet up again, you may have went this way and came straight back across here and did and went this way, then went all the way around another circle, and and then you ended up over here. You see, and that's and this is how we learn our thought processes and what we go through. We have Don, an ex-prisoner speaking about the importance of habeas corpus. He organized in the 60s with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, a wildcat movement in the Detroit auto factories, before serving more than two decades in prison. While in prison, he advocated for other prisoners as a jailhouse lawyer and used habeas writs hundreds of times to seek relief for himself and others. Anyone who's in prison can file one. A writ is a request for the court to order someone to do something, and habeas is Latin for let you have. And corpus means the body. So writ of habeas corpus is literally a request to let you have the body. Legally, a habeas petition asks the court to review the legality of your imprisonment. You challenge the reason for your arrest, or you otherwise explain why the continuation of your detention is unlawful. Any person can represent themselves. It's called being a pro se litigant. Pro se is more Latin meaning for oneself. And a litigant is just the name for a person involved in a lawsuit. When you file a habeas petition, it's a civil action. Habeas is an actual lawsuit against the individual state agent who is holding you. So there's a limited number of ways that people imprisoned on long criminal sentences can ask a court to overturn their conviction or sentence. So usually long-term prisoners will exhaust all of those options in their criminal case while they still have a decade or more left of their prison sentence. So they use habeas after exhausting their criminal case because habeas is a whole new civil case. For a long-term prisoner, habeas is basically their only way of getting in front of a court. But someone... It could be me or you at the beginning of a criminal case can use habeas to hijack the otherwise cruelly slow wheels of justice and get in front of a judge before the state is ready to make its case. Like, if we're all sitting in jail, state sycophants are scribbling away making up facts to suggest that they caught us in the midst of various criminal acts. And for that reason, the state can hold us and prosecute us for those fabricated crimes. My name is Donald Abdul Roberts. Uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. What brings me to speak right now in reference to the subject matter is support from the outside in reference to the inside, the inside being the prisons. But we are also in prison ourselves on the outside, so it's a yin and yang question going here. But in the meantime, one tactic that has not been used by the movement in quite a long time which really speaking about the development of pro se litigators in reference to the question of habeas corpus. Can you uh, say what you mean by pro se litigators? Pro se litigators is one who represents himself in court. That is a court under bourgeois law with uh, jurisdiction over the subject matter and the parties. 
And there's an overlap between a pro se litigator and a jailhouse lawyer in this case? Oh, absolutely. They're both derogatory terms as far as uh, agents of the status quo only because the legal system is set up for the bourgeois. And so when you say you're a pro se litigator or a jailhouse lawyer or you get called that, they're basically saying you're stupid. For me, it sounds like a term of honor, but I guess it's a difference in perspective. Uh, actually, it is on our side of the question. But when they say it, when I say they, I'm talking about the agents of the status quo. They say that in a derogatory term. So if you say it like that, I agree with you. Yeah. And so there's this issue then or this tool of habeas corpus. Yes. Basically, you need to study whoever wants to start using this. And I'm saying this should be a movement study circle. And the more people who study habeas corpus together, the quicker you can master the techniques and it's not about winning or losing in a court of law with jurisdiction over the supplement. That belongs to agents of our enemy. But what I am saying about habeas corpus, it lifts the struggle on another level on one of the greatest writs that our Western civilization claims to be one of their own. And so to that degree, we need to push that reputation to the max I've been here at a conference for the last couple of days since Friday, and uh, I'm learning a lot about the current movement on prisons, and uh, I'm surprised it hasn't been brought up. And the reason why it hasn't been brought up, because the prisons themselves are kind of slow on uh, raising the question of a habeas corpus, especially when it comes to the public, because the first thing they do when prisons start organizing is cut off communication. And if that communication means that they know that you're a pro se litigator, that means that your mail to a courthouse will be delayed, if not destroyed. And if you're on transfer, it's going to get lost. We don't know what happened. We put it in your property, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, moving right along, but us out here in the public, and especially Individuals, if you are committed to the struggle, I think it is extremely important to learn habeas corpus. Not only can you get somebody else out of jail, you can get your own self out of jail with a minimum amount of struggle. And one of the things I know about when you get arrested, if you just stay cool, calm, and collected, and after they go through their little thing, and you know you've been processed in, you ask for a pencil and paper so you can uh, do habeas corpus. And if you've done your homework, you'll know how important that is to have pencil and paper to do so. What's important about habeas corpus or its, uh, its power is that they got to go and bring you before a judge, and if you file habeas corpus for a friend or as the next akin in reference to somebody in prison, they got to bring that person to the courthouse. And from all I've seen about habeas corpus, they can't play with that. There's a lot of penalties for trying to impede habeas corpus, and especially 
in a situation that is absolutely fresh. When you file a habeas corpus when it's absolutely fresh, their time to engage in evidentiary skullduggery is reduced by a thousand yards. And we need every advantage that we can get. And one of the aspects of habeas corpus is uh, technical language of show cause. Show cause meaning show cause by underlying a set of certified facts uh, on the question of probable cause and the particularity of probable cause. Certified means that somebody has either direct testimony or affidavit that you did something wrong. And that's where you can beat them at the game. If there's a bunch of mass arrests or four or five, especially in a small town, most of them don't know how to write fast. Uh, they got to tell lies about what happened. And so they got to move around. So if you can hit them uh, with a rough draft of uh, just enough to get yourself in court or just enough for them to think that you're fixing to go to court, excellent. And what's important about habeas corpus is that uh, the movement is going to have to keep itself out of jail. And uh, at this particular point, I don't see no lawyers on the horizon who have the moral turpitude to uphold the principles in which the movement is promoting. So administrative segregation is absolutely has a set of facts to establish jurisdiction of a court in reference to habeas corpus. Anytime you've been in intimate danger and the disappearance of prisoners, especially, uh, now that's the thing about habeas corpus. If uh, you file a habeas corpus in the county in which they were at, and if they transfer that prisoner after you file that habeas corpus, that's a big no-no throughout all the states in the United States and as well as under uh, federal habeas uh, corpus law. But the main thing is to learn, to learn how to use it. And before you use it, don't be uh, a paper tiger and pretend to know something that you don't know. Actually know the statutory elements, read up on the case law of of uh, habeas corpus and get a sense of what it takes. And there's no appeal on habeas corpus. Every time you file a habeas corpus, it's an original writ. So let us just say, they say, oh, he's not there anymore. Well, where is he at? And they got to tell you that if you're talking habeas corpus. Well, if they don't tell you that, then you still got habeas corpus. You got habeas corpus into the Supreme Court of uh, the state that you're in. You got uh, habeas corpus in the Federal District Court in reference to where you're at. And so as long as you are confident with the facts to establish jurisdiction for habeas corpus, the technicalities of it doesn't mean as much as the facts. It's the facts is what's established the law. So 
even if you can't cite a whole bunch of this, that, and other and pretend like you's a legal scholar, if you actually got facts that fit within the scope of habeas corpus statutory constitutional and common law, and the presumption on my part at this particular point is that you would actually find out what facts do establish habeas corpus. And prisons are excellent. From the county jail on to prisons is always an excellent time to file a habeas corpus. As far as the mail goes, if you are creative with your facts, and when I mean creative, you actually have facts where a person has been transferred on account of something that went through the mail, they calling this treason or something like that, and they fixing to get charged with a felony. Those are grounds under the First Amendment for an habeas corpus. So the main thing about habeas corpus is that it's still good. It's a bourgeois tool, but it has working class implications. It has implications for all toilers against the status quo. The other presumption on my part is that uh, you have the gift of gab and you also have the gift of words. And if you don't have the words, at least have the gift to investigate. I would like to entertain any questions at this particular point from my sponsor. Was any of this affected by the so-called prison litigation reform process? Absolutely. Absolutely. When that happened, uh, well, actually, it went, well, that was the beginning of it. But the solid foundation was uh, 9-11, the Patriot Act. Bush ran through all everything. And what they did, they had compiled all the bills that they hadn't been able to pass in Congress and the different states put that together or were putting it together over 30 years. So the Patriot Act is all the things that they didn't pass that they wanted to pass, and they added yeast to it with the 9-11 hookup. So amen on that point. Yeah. But it's still possible to work around the ways they've attempted to prevent prisoners from using these writs. Absolutely. The use of the king's language goes a long ways in these situations. Radicals should have this skill. I'm amazed at the witlessness of using bourgeois tools. You want to use the, uh, the bourgeois press, and here you got one of the most famous rich in the history of humanity, as far as bourgeois law goes, habeas corpus. On that note, I'm gonna rest my case. We'll have a link to the full episode with Don on habeas corpus on our website. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio.
Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.